we'll pretend it's not going to happen and we're not going to talk about it. But the vast majority of payouts related to malpractice insurance is, is, is centered in like five states. Oh, absolutely. Ask Warren Buffett about the insurance business. Boys and girls, we are here, Greg Henry and I, in a very special spot and place and time. We are at the Marriott Hotel at the Marina del Rey while we are attending and, and uh, facultizing yes. the uh, EMA course here that has been uh, nicely attended with a good group, uh, a good collection of people from New Zealand, Australia, some Canadians, some PAs and NPs. And some ER docs, and it's just uh, been a nice experience. Greg, I just picked them up from the airport. Greg, you are a gorilla. You, 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 you told me what you did today. Greg, first of all, t talked at a conference uh, on medical legal things for residents in Detroit this morning. Right, what I time, did. What time did you get up, Greg? I got up at 6 o'clock a.m. Okay. That's Detroit time, and that's 3 o'clock in the morning this time. So he gave his, his talks at that thing and got standing ovations. Um, it, it was, and then he came here by airplane, uh, and I picked him up at the airport, and I said, "Greg, do you want something to eat? You want to take a little rest?" He said, "No, no, I want to get right to it." So we're in his suite, and we're going to go through the May issue, 2013, of our Risk Management Monthly. Now, last month we did a ton of letters, so we have a couple uh, this this month, but we got a, a lot of other things that I think you'll be interested in. So, Greg, you you've got one from uh, is it James Heisen? Well, I, I've got one from Jim. Jim. We'll just call him Jim. And so we'll say things on this show like "Hi, Jim," <laughs> and, and then he can say "Hi," and you know we're all serious right, too. Then, then this it, is his emergency not, medicine. Not who I said it was. Yeah, that's it, right. He's a totally different person. Totally different person. So what's the essence of his letter? Well, he writes and says, uh, uh, boys, uh, sorry to bother you guys again. And uh, listen. Do you, do you charge him when he calls? No, I do not. <laughs> and uh, Jim, if you are if you keep subscribing, just bother us. It's okay. But he has an interesting question, and it has huge ramifications. If we are going to move to an outpatient world which everyone agrees that's what's going to happen to do, Rick, uh, what's going to happen. What we're going to have to do is then decide what services are going to be given in the hospital and what the emergency physician is responsible for. And what Jim tells us here is his hospital, uh, trying to keep up with Medicare outpatient prospective payment systems, is having things done like blood transfusions, IV antibiotics, this, that, and another thing in, a, in an area next to the emergency department. And because of those federal rules, there has to be a physician immediately available to act if there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is the hospital just says, well, you guys are in the ER. You can handle it. And he wants to know what his liability is. Here are people who that he does not know has never seen, and as you know, Rick, they're not going to call him to say, gee, Jim, this patient's doing really fine. <laughs> I've never seen that happen in my entire life. Uh, what, the, what he's going to get called for is somebody's lips are now swelling. Uh, they are becoming short of breath, this, that, or another thing. He wants to know what his liability is. And I, I can think, and how he should manage this. I think, first of all, Jim, 
if you're providing a service to the hospital, there ought to be some financial remuneration involved with that. Well, maybe his remuneration is that he gets to continue to work there. Well, <laughs> that uh, yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, don't don't beat me, Massa. Don't beat me anymore, right? Is that is that the new philosophy? But I think the uh, there are things you can do. And, you know, Jim is not the only person I've heard this problem from. This, this is going to be everywhere. And the first thing I would do is require the hospital ask the hospital to issue a letter of indemnification such that if there is a problem, the hospital will extend um, and, and pay all costs and charges under their insurance plan for any difficulties that might arise. Well, this is the same thing as stuff going into emergencies on the floor. It's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. And I, and I think... It, it, I kind of believe at this moment in time, I haven't seen this particular case yet, but it is going to happen. And so oh, sure. so you need to get some insurance background. The other thing, I would at least minimum talk to your own insurance carrier and say, are you aware this is going on? Uh, you're comfortable with this. If I do this, you're covering me because most insurance policies won't because if they do it per patient, and they actually take the charts and the numbers off those charts to determine, well, you've seen 25,000 patients this year or 50,000, whatever that ERC is. That means you've got a patient that you've assumed liability for that you haven't paid premium on. That's, that's exactly right. And in, in um, our policy, they counted patients exactly. How many patients? They wanted to know the log. And you paid on each one. Not only did you pay on each one, there was a differential. Levels one, two, and three were at one rate. Fours and fives were another rate. So to assume that uh, all of these folks that are over there basically are going to be cared for you and the insurance company is going to cover you and there's, you know, they may be generous about it. The, the reality is that this may represent, you know, one case a, a, a year. But the fact of the matter is, is that I wouldn't do this without knowing that I'm covered. Well, in, 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 my, in my former life, um, I delivered 250 kids running upstairs from the emergency department to the fourth floor labor area at uh, Bayer Hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, because in the middle of winter, Rick, and I know you California raisins don't understand winter. Winter, you know, it gets yeah. down to 55 degrees 55, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so people were snowed in, couldn't get in, uh, OB people had coming in. I did over that period of time deliver 250 kids, and well, that's and, a little scary. To well, tell scary. You. God, when I review that now in my own mind, I was so glad when a head actually appeared first, and not a shoulder or a pair of feet. And it was uh, or a buttocks was, or a buttocks. Oh no, <laughs> that happened, and I had to do an inversion maneuver. And you know what? I'd seen it once in med school. And I did one, and it worked out. Oh, my God. All right, so the bottom line here is get your letter of indemnification if you can, uh, or certainly check with your own insurance company to see how they feel about this. You know, most emergency docs are, are in this mode that we'll pretend it's not going to happen, and we're not going to talk about it. I think the best thing you can do is just have an honest discussion with the hospital, the hospital's attorney, your department. Let them come visit and say, What's the situation? What are you going to extend? What are we going to do? Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. You know, one of the faculty at the course is our good friend, Diane Birnbaumer. Yes. And she wrote, one of the lectures at the course 
is called Rules and Regulations. And Kevin Clower did a fabulous job about all of the, uh, he, he just, it was a tremendous chapter. And one of the things in that chapter that kind of fried her <laughs> a, a bit. <laughs> to say the least. Is, is uh, the, the necessity to clarify whether Mtala mandates ambulance transfer because she, at the receiving hospital that she works, basically said, uh, uh, yeah, we, we have a transfer coming in. And what was it? It was a finger injury. And uh, wherever this hospital was, I guess they weren't capable of taking care of a finger injury. But the fact of the matter is, is most of them can, you know, keep till the morning kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So uh, they basically wanted a transfer to uh, Harbor General, and uh, they insisted the patient come by ambulance. And Diane went um, berserko saying, you know, this, this hospital is 50 miles away. Can you imagine what the ambulance trip is going to cost from that place? And the hospital insisted. So Diane said, I need some clarification here because in our lecture it says MTALA does not mandate the mode of transportation. And so uh, basically it is the call of the sending doctor only in the <coughs> setting of an MTALA transfer. An MTALA transfer is about unstable patients, higher levels of care where there's some urgency here. And so we asked our friend Bob Bitterman to straighten us out. I love Bob. He's a great guy. He was a partner of mine. He's an MDJD, and his whole focus early on in his career was MTALA. Nobody knows more about this than Bob, and Bob's pretty clear as an answer to this one, Rick. Yeah, this is in case you ever ha have any MTALA questions and you want an expert, Bob's an MDJD. Bitterman Health Law Consulting Group is... Uh, and his website is robertbitterman.com. Now, that was a little bit of an advertisement, but the fact of the matter is, is we don't know anybody who knows more about this and is more on top of this topic. Well, anyway, Bob responded, and as are always, it's a very thorough answer. Cause, yes. You know, it's that lawyer part of him. That's yeah, kind of, no, you know, do you know, Bob? He was the, he was anal compulsive before he ever became a lawyer. Anyway, let me right. yeah. let me summarize what Bob had to say, and it actually agrees with what Kevin uh, put down. Kevin is also a recent law school graduate and is medical director of EMP, where he's responsible for the behavior of seven hundred or so providers. God bless you, Kevin. Uh, but in any case, uh, Bob said, "Emtala does not require the patients be transferred by ambulance." The transferring hospital is solely responsible for the mode of transfer, though. Although, uh, so if this hospital insists on it, it's their call. Um, but if they're under the delusion that it is required, it turns out to be a, a great disservice to the patient who's going to get a $3,000 bill for this ride. And I know for a fact that ambulance companies are not don't have much of a humor in terms of cutting back on those bills. No, they don't. Anyway, he said also, an EMTALA transfer involves unstable patients and requires use of qualified personnel and transportation equipment. Uh, a patient who does not have an emergency medical condition, and this is the most important part, or has an emergency condition that has been stabilized, is not an EMTALA transfer. And soon as it is not an EMTALA transfer, Diane's hospital is not obligated to uh, accept the patient. Diane's hospital has the right to say, I want this patient transferred by uh, ambulance. Diane's hospital has the right to say, I want a CAT scan on every bone in the body in a CBC and, and, set, and set any kind of contingencies they want. 
But when they are acting as the recipient of an EMTALA transfer, they are not in a position to mandate these things. It is the responsibility of the <laughs> sending a physician. And an EMTALA transfer basically says the hospital who's receiving has to acknowledge that they have the capability of handling that case. And it, and, and we got a bed, and yes, we, we can handle it, and that's the end of it. Aren't you just feeling warm and fuzzy inside that the same people who run the post office <laughs> run this? Come on, give me a break. Uh, if, if you had to take everyone, and we had kids all the time who, let's say, they broke both bones of the forearm or something. Uh, we didn't have uh, an orthopod that night. We'd, we'd send them with family to the university hospital and they did just fine. You're right. The cost of ambulance transport is huge. Then on all these kids, they want to stick an IV in them. They want to do this. You need they, oxygen. You need oxygen. What about that monitor? Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> it, 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 it gets to the point, Rick, where we have no idea why we're doing things anymore. And uh, as long as we can charge for them, then it must be right. Kevin uh, cited a chapter and verse uh defending that position and i think we all included in our notes but okay. I, don't, I don't necessarily want to read it i did think that there was two points of clarification needed what is an emergency medical condition because there's only two things we're talking about emergency medical condition and stabilized right so if you don't mind can i just say this or, or we could how am i going to stop too. you rick go ahead well an, a an emergency medical condition per the statute, is defined as, or the regulations, a medical condition manifesting itself by acute symptoms of sufficient severity, including severe pain, such that the absence of immediate medical attention could reasonably be expected to result in placing the health of the individual or with respect to a pregnant woman, the health of the woman or her unborn child in serious jeopardy. It's hard to imagine a finger injury that would qualify here, don't you think? Well, I can, I can understand that a little bit, but I would point out to you, we presented a case many years ago here on Risk Management Monthly where there was an EMTALA action against a hospital about them sending a finger injury someplace else that they should have been able to take care of themselves, and it caused a, it caused a, a federal investigation. Um, because the hospital in reality, probably is more than capable of handling that finger well, that was and has done it multiple <laughs> times in the past. Yes, but this they poor have. soul has no insurance, and so they think it's an Amtala transfer. You need to be transferred to, to uh, Wayne State University to have this taken care of. Well, right? there, here, there may be a loophole here, because part two of the definition, serious impairment to bodily functions or serious dysfunction of any bodily part uh, or organ. Well, serious dysfunction, you know, I can imagine your finger could be pretty chopped up. Depends which finger. But, you know, it could be cleansed and splinted and anesthetized, and uh, it could be sent in a car. There was a case I, w I heard of, and I don't know what the outcome was, where somebody was sent in a car and got lost and went to the wrong hospital. Mm. And that kind of caused a little um, guffuffle. But um, I don't know what the outcome was of that. But I certainly would not say therefore every soul has to go by ambulance please no. and the last part with respect to a pregnant woman which was the source of all the symptoms right. in the beginning who is having contractions 
and there is inadequate time to effect a safe transfer to another hospital before delivery, or that the transfer may pose a threat to the child's health or safety of the woman of her unborn child. That is also considered to be uh, an unstable patient. Right. But unless they've modified it, it says inadequate time to effect a safe transfer. The average labor for a first delivery is 24 hours. I remember. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like the other hospitals. But I think it's generally viewed that a woman in active labor is considered to be uh, not stable for transfer. By the way, it's interesting that you talk about the term stable and stabilize. Well, that's your part. I got you underlined for that part. Oh, well, let, let me just tell you. The, the term stabilize has gone up and down the pike. Let me tell you what they decided in several cases, and, and Dr. Bitterman occasionally speaks about these. Uh, for example, in Chicago, there was a case about someone with appendicitis seen at an outside hospital, and then transferred down to Cook County. Um, Plenty of time, that sort of thing. In that case, the feds said, or the investigation said, you have surgeons, you have this, you have that. A, a, A patient with an appendix is not stabilized until the appendix is removed. Delivered? Delivered. It's just like the baby, yes. You just deliver it out of a different incision. But but the but the bottom line of that case was, you know what? If you can handle these things and you uh, usually do things, you've stabilized the condition when you've stabilized the condition. And and this isn't like a broken leg and you don't have an orthopod at that moment. You know, most hospitals and this one had multiple general surgeons on staff and it I th- it, it couldn't have had to do with the fact that the patient had no insurance, did it? I yeah, this was not a to a higher level of care. Well, that's that's the question. Well, I also looked up the definition of stabilized. So we're talking about two things: emergency medical condition one. They have to have that. And the question is, are they stabilized or not? Yeah. And cl- obviously, there's clinical judgment in terms of whether a person is considered a stabilized. Yeah. So the definition is for emergency medical conditions that no material deterioration of the patient's condition is likely to result from the transfer is likely to occur during the transfer. So it, yeah, that's a medical judgment. Right. That and it it talks about not that there was a bad outcome, was there a foreseeable bad outcome that you could affect by doing something else? Right. You see, see, a lot of our transfers, there could be a bad outcome if you're at a small hospital in Upper Michigan and you've got a child from a uh, four wheeler accident, and there's a subdural developing. Uh, could they? Do badly in the trip. Yes, they could. How are they going to do if they stay at that hospital with no neurosurgeon? Bad. It's not going well. You're allowed to transfer unstable patients. Absolutely. Um, The second part of the definition is for patients in active labor, the infant and the placenta have been delivered. So they don't, this is not negotiable. Um, The other parts of whether a person has been stabilized is negotiable. The doctor thought the patient was stabilized. The investigators think the patient was not stabilized. That's, right. that's a matter of opinion. There's no matter of opinion when a woman is in labor. Yep. So despite the fact that she could be in labor for 24 hours. The first big Amtala case ever was in the state of Texas 
and it had to do with the transfer of a pregnant woman who, by the way, delivered en route. And in Texas, you know, they got miles and miles of miles and miles. It was and, a long distance. And there was no harm to this baby. None, none, zero. This is like a speeding ticket. Right. It doesn't matter whether you get into an accident. You, you get a ticket for speeding. It doesn't matter whether you get into an accident or not, or if it was perfectly reasonable uh, or that you were speeding or uh, whatever. The legal precedent is punishment for potential harm. It's not about the harm you did, because they'll get you for that. It's It could have gone badly, and it didn't. But but the uh, Patrick case in Texas was the uh, sort of the first big Amtala case. All right, Rick, what's next? You want to do this? Uh, actually, Dr. Bitterman is in the news here, because I, I saw that he was um, the center of a story regarding these uh, services where you kind of... Uh, well, originally you would pay money, and you could stay at home, and they would call you when your when your turn was coming. This is concierge. <laughs> uh, really, it's concierge emergency medicine. You know, there's a show on TV called Royal Pains about you know sort of a flitzy emergency doctor who wanders around to rich people's homes on uh, Long Island. And uh, that's con- ultra concierge medicine. But this is, you've made an appointment, essentially, to come to the emergency department. Right. So that instead of having to wait out there, all those unwashed masses, you can stay at home. And they'll give you a buzz when it's your turn to be seen. Yes. And so um, this was a story in emergency medicine news in the February uh, 2012 issue. And one of the services that we've talked about in the past and I think it's pretty ingenious, but it, I also think it's kind of sad, is the Inquicker service. And they, they uh, where you, they have 192 um, EI, I guess, ERs in 23 states where you can, you originally you could pay between, I think, 15 and $25 a patient would, and they would be allowed the luxury of staying home. Now, Jump the line. Yeah. Um, some of the hospitals now have eaten the fee, and it's free to the patients who want to do this. But uh, Dr. Bitterman was commenting on the fact that this um, may be an EMTALA-related issue. Rick, I don't even think it's close. (laughs) You know what? If it's an emergency department that's supposed to make medical decisions of when you're seen, and now you have somebody who's waving the gold card, no, the black card, say, I got a black card. I get to get in first, you know, you kid with the arrow in your head and, and the, the person with the huge burn. I'm sorry, I've had a sore throat for three days. That's the issue, is how you're going to prioritize it. Well, the other, other thing is you obviously call into the ER and you tell somebody about your symptoms mm-hmm. and somehow they decide, okay, it doesn't sound like you've got a big deal going on here. You can wait and we'll give you a call when it's your turn. And... um now, the triage nurses are not doing medical screening exams in 99.9% of the hospitals, so I don't know that uh, that's an, a, a medical screening exam issue, but um, it, it does seem to accept a little risk here. You know, you're just getting their history over the phone. This is probably a nurse. It's not the doctor. And they're going to decide, yeah, you can stay home a while. And I'm, I'm sure that that's fine for 95% of the cases. But... 
um, Dr. Bitterman had some concerns. He says he thinks the services may violate talent. Now, right. he, he's not saying they do. He's just got a concern about this. Well, you know why he's raising it that way? He hasn't seen a case. What he's saying is uh, all lawyers couch things. This is down the road. I don't know of a case that's actually gone forward on this, but he's warning us of a potential here, and I think that's correct. If there are any of the listeners whose hospitals want them to go to the uh, quicker in service, I, w- I would play that scenario through and decide, are you willing to undergo a- an MTALA visit? Yeah, and I think that you ought to get an MTALA expert to you know, analyze exactly what you're doing here because there are a lot of nuances uh, about this. Right. In any case, that emergency medicine news article quoted an, um, uh, a section that he did in the ED legal letter, which right. is, um, I guess that would be considered a competitor. <laughs> uh, well, well, well <laughs> let, let's say a, a colleagues, colleagues yes. in the dissemination well, if you want to read right. about it, it's in the May... 2012 issue where Dr. Bitterman gets into this thing. Um, And he basically says, the issue is whether a hospital's um, process for screening the pre-registered patient, whether that process is uniform, non-disparate, and non-discriminatory compared to the hospital's process for screening patients who register upon arrival. And, you know, and it doesn't sound like the same to me. There's no vital signs that are being taken. You know, right. Uh, uh, that's what's done in routinely in triage, and he's not doing. You know, they're not doing that over the phone. Nope. So Bob is noted as observing that the courts have held that treating patients differently in the ED for non-medical reasons, and this has got to be non-medical, is generally considered against the law. Now yep. he's not saying yes, no kind of thing, but he's concerned, and he's the expert. Well, we're up. We're out front on this issue, Rick. We're warning our people to think about it before they acquiesce to it. Um, he also says, this is, I'm paraphrasing here a bit, patients who are seen before patients who just walked in because they paid for pre-registration, this is a quote, is clearly illegal under MTALA. Well, isn't that the essence of this? these services? That's exactly what this is. He says it may be illegal even if the hospitals don't charge for the <coughs> service, but that is not clear-cut. Um, now, I, I, Bob, if I'm misquoting you or anything like that, we, uh, you and I basically said we'll, we'll be doing an issue with you in, a, in, in the next several months, and then you can come back in. And if we're really screwing up, send us an email, and we'll yeah, we'll do something, we'll about, do something it. about it. He is also noted as observing that services that require hospitals to accept patient information with the online appointment request, which may, many do, to determine if the patient should come in more quickly than by appointment, are increasing the hospital's liability. Well, that makes just makes sense because it's not the same triage as occurring with everybody else. That's exactly right. And, and what it is is discriminatory. That's why the feds passed the act, was to get this thing on a more level playing field, and, and we should just be aware of it. Well, I really admire these guys who came up with this, but I'm embarrassed that that emergency departments need something like this. The idea is to fix the problem and stop making patients wait when they're not feeling well, they've got an injury, and um, there's just the CEO of the hospital has not made it a priority 
to support the department to see these patients in an efficient manner because there's been such a tradition. You ask anybody in the United States about ERs, they said, oh, yeah, you wait. I've been driving around, and I've seen billboards, billboards of estimated wait times at hospitals. And you can go onto your cell phone and see estimated wait times. What a screwed up business. <laughs> you always know you're in trouble when it lists the decade. <laughs> the decade should not be put in there. Two That's days. Two, yeah, it can be seen in two days. <laughs> two days, maybe, uh, you if know, you're lucky. It is so embarrassing <laughs> to be associated with an industry where this is such a universal problem. Yeah, no, it, it's a problem. Rick, let's do some of these interesting stories that have come up here. Uh, you want to do this one about the uh, tort reform in uh, Florida and Georgia? You want to do that one? Um, yeah, that's that's all right. We'll take on that one. Um, Wall Street you, Journal. Yeah, the, this is the Wall Street Journal, and they and the title is "Kicking the Malpractice Tort Out of the Courts." Um, and this is the title of the story that appeared in the the March nineteenth, two thousand thirteen issue. And they spoke about two states which have really come a long way on this question of what, should emergency medicine be protected more, this, that, another thing. Uh, Florida and Georgia, who have, who have gone a long way on this issue. But basically what they've said is they've taken a British view of this. They've saying we need to kick uh, malpractice out of the tort system and they, they rationalize this with several different things. They say, uh, they say one of the reasons to do this is we've got to be encouraging more doctors to come in to take care of these patients. If there's a cardiologist or an orthopedic surgeon or things like that who feels, you know, what orthopedic surgeon wants the phone call at 2 in the morning that says, I've got a 19-year-old who's drunk who's just taken a header off his motorcycle. He's got some open bones. Is he going to get infected? Sure. Is he probably going to, to lose part of his leg? Absolutely. And by the way, there's no guarantee of payment. And by the way, they can still sue you. Um, with, is there anything else you'd like me to do before you come in, like shove a sharp stick up your nose or something like that? But that's really that's really part of the deal. And and when they looked at 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 some of the references here, the firm Bioscience Valuation says the annual cost of defensive medicine in America exceeds uh, four hundred and eighty billion dollars. Now. I'm not sure that that number is right because they go on to say a quarter of the healthcare costs in America are due to defensive medicine. I'm not sure you can defend that number, but clearly the studies have said this. Buying the insurance is the cheap part. That's 1% of the healthcare bill of the United States. But the test ordering and behavior of physicians could clearly be 10 or 15% of the cost of health care. And that not only includes testing, but giving out, passing out medications of very dubious benefit and value. Now, whether I agree with this 25% number or not, I, I think that's kind of a huge jump. Well, what are they suggesting? You said they're going to get rid of, they want to get rid of the medical tort system and replace it with something like a workers compensation board kind of thing they're calling it the patient compensation system which would uh create a no fault exactly administrative model for addressing medical injuries well what they basically said was and by the way this doesn't take care of the problem you still have some doctors out there who should get spanked 
Mm-hmm. But what this says is we're not going to have a fight about who's at fault and the money. The medical society will take care of doctors who are negligent. What this is saying is to compensate patients. Let's file a, a, a claim, let a board look and see how you're doing, and take care of any problems financially. And what we know is then at least a third of the money or 40% of the money is not going into some lawyer's pocket. Yeah, they say patients unhappy with their care would file a claim to a panel of healthcare experts. And if medical injury was concluded to have occurred, the patient would be compensated without the current adversarial system. This is basically, isn't that what they do in New Zealand? Yes, that's exactly what they do in New Zealand. And well, and it's very similar to, to what actually happens in Britain because there's no battle of experts there. The court looks at the case. They hire somebody from the panel of, of consultants, the highest level docs. Somebody looks at it and asks this question, is this reasonable or unreasonable care? And if it's considered unreasonable, they come up with a payment system. Uh, but this one is even takes it one step farther and says, you know, we'll take care of your financial downside, um, but uh, we're not going to have a fight in court that goes on for five years about this system. Uh, this Wall Street Journal article said that it is estimated to save Georgia Medicaid $3.1 billion over a decade. And in Florida, it is estimated to save $16.8 billion uh, in Florida. They would in, it would increase access since currently small cases don't incre- uh, interest medical malpractice attorneys. And I think that, you know, people kind of poo-poo that. But the fact of the matter is, is that I brought this up, you know, I think, many, many issues ago where this anesthesiologist whose mom had, whose elderly mother had a knee replacement and died several days later, no, he could not get a lawyer to take the case. Obviously, something nasty went wrong. She died. In the same article, this was in the LA Times, they talked about a child who had surgery for clubfoot. And during the surgery, or in, in relationship with the surgery, that ser- child also died. Well, a child is worth no money. And an elderly person who dies is no w- worth no money because in California, the limit of pain and suffering is $250,000. So basically, this these parents had no recourse. They could not get a, a lawyer to take the case. And clearly, there was mistakes made. Child's, children don't die after clubfoot surgery. So um, this would allow you know, more people to access the system, uh, and this medical panel would need to deal with it. The sources of payments, a fund paid by medical providers, large savings would be anticipated for them over paying traditional malpractice premiums because the idea of malpractice premiums is to make a profit in the insurance company, number one, and for lawyers to make good livings in the process. Obviously, the trial lawyers are against the proposals, surprisingly, but the courage of these two states to take such a radical, straightforward approach is, is kind of remarkable. I can't envision that it would pass. Well, I can't envision that it's going to pass the way it's proposed, but I think that there's going to be things that have to happen. As the, as the medical system of the United States gets broker and broker, people are going to ask a lot more questions, and I'll tell you where there's really going to be limitations is um, on, on certain kinds of care, uh, which is not given near the end of life. 
you know, there have been suits brought, well, they could have done more to save my mother kind of thing. Uh, they're going to have a panel look at that and decide, you know what, <laughs> that wasn't going to save Grandma, and we're not going to let this kind of thing go on. I'd stay tuned to this. By the way, you realize only some states need this. South Dakota doesn't need this. Montana doesn't need this. Why? Because they don't sue anybody there. You realize the suit rate in, my, in South Dakota for emergency doctors is like there's one, one paper brought per 100,000 visits. That means there's two patients last, two, two suits last year in the state of South Dakota. It's unbelievable. You go to Florida, it's one in every 5,000 visits. Yeah, actually, I, I wish I could recall the numbers because I think that they were very interesting. But the vast majority of payouts related to malpractice insurance is, is, is centered in like five states. Oh, absolutely. And, and if, if you look, by the way, those are the same five states. You did an excellent piece in EMA about the 243 medical regions of the country and how good the care was and what the cost was. And I actually wrote an editorial about it that says, uh, said that uh, Iowa looks better and better to everybody. They spent less money per person in the Medicare program than almost anybody. And they live longer. If you look at those five states, it's it's Florida, New, uh, it, New York, New York, New Jersey, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I yep. think is one of them. Yep. I, um, it isn't California, by the way. California no, is is suit, not unreasonable. The suits in California have dropped remarkably. Right. Remarkably. Right. And what that does <laughs> is it allows the insurance companies to have a bigger spread. Because, yeah, they might drop the rates a little bit, or they may hold them steady. But their payouts have gone way, way down. Yes. So uh, it, the insurance business, ask Warren Buffett about the insurance business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what he thinks of, of, about the insurance business. Yes, right. right. Okay, Rick, next uh, article. Yeah, this is the one that you uh, told me about. This is yeah. the one, preparing EPs, emergency physicians, for malpractice litigation. Now, can you pronounce this doctor's name? Help me out here. I usually have Jerry. Danius is the name. That's his first name. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Dr- Drachtinus. Yeah, usually Hoffman helps me out on this stuff. <laughs> well, the, that doesn't mean he's right, right? Kelly right. O'Keefe. Yeah. Tracy Sanson. And, I, and we had to include our friend, our old friend, David Orban. Well, we, we know, except for uh, Danius. All of these people are my friends, and I, I like to see my friends publishing. This is a good thing. Go ahead. So this is from the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Um, they make the assertion that educational programs for physicians to prepare and navigate the current legal system are either lacking or deficient. I don't think we're going to. Well, obviously, if you listen to this, they're not lacking nor deficient. Right, frankly. right. They've made, they've made an assumption. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So by way of background, they say that the <laughs> annual rate of physicians being sued is about one in 14. Um, but the average risk of a lawsuit resulting in a payment is only one in 60 because mm-hmm. we win the vast majority we of the time. But as Greg says, to be sued is to lose. doesn't matter. But one in 60 payouts. The risk of a physician being sued in a low-risk <clears throat> specialty like dermatology by the age of 65 is about 75%, and it's about 99% in a high-risk specialty, which emergency medicine has to be included in. Yeah, but emergency medicine has a huge spread. If you are in certain states, 
uh, it's small. If if you're in the state of Florida, for example, the chances you're going to be sued in the next four years are pretty damn good. And in the next 10 years, probably a couple of times. So it, it is state dependent, and we should point that out. So what did these guys do about, they set up this mock trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, dis, you know, they, they described their experience in conducting mock trial between residents at the University of uh, South Florida Tampa General Program and uh, Stetson University College of Law. So basically what they set up was law students who were badgering uh, uh, residents. Uh, and to me, you hate to criticize your friends, but as a study, law students do not bring the same gravitas to that situation as some of the plaintiff's attorneys you and I have met, Rick, who really can uh, kick your butt. <laughs> There's no yeah. question about it. The only thing that was real in this case is the judges. <clears throat> they had the judges. three judges uh, serving as a, on a panel, kind of watching how these residents responded to the um, interrogation of the lawyers. Well, they used one judge as, as, as an actual as the, judge. As the real judge. And he was the one refereeing what was going on. But the three judges did something very interesting. They took notes during the thing and then provided criticism, saying, you know, you look like this, you look like that. How come you dress like a slob or, you know, or, or a trollop or something? And why don't you do this and this and this? And how come you're sitting forward, bouncing your feet and moving your fingers? What they did was they looked at the show and asked this question. What would fly in a court of law and at they, that moment in time? Yeah. They, they then advised the residents. Yep. And then they <clears throat> went through a second round of testimony. And, and obviously, there's a certain bias here that you're going to anticipate that those residents are going to listen to what you said and do better. So this is not like a compelling, randomized, controlled trial. No. But it's an attempt to teach residents how to act on the stand. And they ad addressed about five or six different elements, like... Um, courtroom attire the judges had something to say oh about my that. god <laughs> they didn't like long they felt that it, you know this is all very 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 subjective but they said uh long earrings on the ladies was distracting i would think it would probably be even more distracting on the males it could be um failure of the ma uh, of the males to button their suit coats small point small point made them appear less professional according to these judges now these judges might have been old farts you know, um, Rick, are, the jury, <laughs> most jurors don't know anything about sensitivity or specificity or, or, or a number needed to treat. They don't. They look at the show. If we haven't learned anything over the last few years is the court system doesn't always get it right. And I don't want to necessarily reference the OJ decision, the first OJ decision again. But you know what? The show counts. What they said was, these are these are judges who've watched juries their entire life. They say the show counts. So they're just trying to be helpful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, m my two cents is um, this is not the time to wear your Rolex. Absolutely not. You get your Timex on, on kind of thing. Yeah. I think you need to dress conservatively. Yes. And, you know, um, I would even suggest, frankly, that women in suits... 
look very businesslike. They look very professional. Right. And, and that's just my two cents. You can wear that spring frolic, uh, you know, thing that you want to, but um, we had a woman come to an interview for a job at our hospital. And this woman had this Navy suit on that was like, this lady means business. Right. And uh, uh, you just could not help but take her very seriously. Well, in my in my list, which I have for the residents of, here's the 25 books you need to read in your life to have a better life. One of them is Dress for Success. Here's the situation. This is what you ought to look like just so that so that it doesn't hurt you. What, you know, it's not that you're making a fashion statement. What you're doing is trying to prevent something bad from happening. But they had a lot of things. The demeanor and the body language, Rick, is worth commenting upon. Distracting quirks, you know, playing with their hair, uh, nervous twitches, all these thine of th- kinds of things. And I, and I think that they should know even how to sit in the chair. Absolutely. Oh, because because it sets the stage. You know, I was at a, a trial not too long ago, and uh, I was a witness in the trial. I'm and glad you clarified that, because a lot of people would <laughs> be writing in. Yeah, yeah. And um, these trial attorneys kind of they they know what they're looking for. They know their stuff, kind of thing. And now I don't know how you feel about this, but you know, leaning back in the chair is kind of like you know, relax, kind of thing. You know, you know, versus kind of leaning forward a bit showing that you're engaged attentive kind of thing i think these small things matter the the attorney afterwards said he 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 pat me on the head but that was one of the specific things that he brought up it makes you look like you're engaged right no those people have to decide uh with non-science backgrounds whether you did it right or wrong so at least look interested and what's happening? It, 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 it's, it, it's interesting that the the judges who are who are grading them, they took that seriously, and they thought body language. Also, folding the arms in front of you is a closure action. You just folded your arms in front of me, and it's a very a kind of um, it's a superiority kind of thing. It looks like uh, you know I'm closing myself off to you, right? Um, don't do that. Why would I disdain to listen to a piece of crap like you? That's exactly. what that that's what that sense. And and I, you know, the judges noticed that and they they um they, they expressed it. With regard to expressing themselves clearly, the residents, repeated use of ums was noted. Speaking too quickly gives the appearance of nervousness. Stop. When you're saying medical things, You've got to do it so the average person can listen to the discussion. If it's too rapid with too big a words, they have no idea what you said. It's the same way. See, I, I think this reflects on how those residents discharge patients from the emergency department. And, and as soon as you've decided on a language and a cadence, which they can't relate to, they have no idea what you said. Yeah, so they said... Using terms not understood by the jury was obviously <clears throat> not a good idea. I love this one. Use of unprofessional terms to describe aspects of the care. Specifically, rectal administration was referred to as giving a medication up the butt. 
Ooh. One, one, one of the residents said, oh, we gave it up the butt, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that really made a big impression. On well, the see, and the problem is, sitting around with a bunch of emergency docs, nobody would blink. But these people aren't, and it, it offended the sensibility. Yes, it did. Of, of the judges. This is not professional language. Right. It's like referring to the, the, fat, the fat girl in room 12 as the beach whale. It, it's, it's not oh, yeah. going to go. I, I got a comment on a, a, a note that we got. Um, somebody suggested that your phraseology of cardiac cripple was an uh, insensitive term, doctor cardiac cripple i'm an old guy uh you know we used to use that term and we didn't mean anything i I mean we carried with it a certain set of things if i offended anyone well you know (laughs) take it get it get it i think this is an example that you would not refer to when you were speaking to a patient or their patient's family you would not use that phrase that would be a phrase that would be more likely to be used between professionals, right? Because I think we know what it means. I, th- I think there is some disability here related to the underlying fear of the disease. That would be more acceptable. Oh, you mean cardiac cripple? Yeah. Oh, yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, okay. Exactly. I got it. All right. Oh, uh, the other thing that they talked about is uh, how they handled the uh, direct examination. You want to cover that? Um, uh, oh, oh, the. Um, Uh, On direct examination, the theories being pursued by the attorneys were not in sync with what the residents said. Yeah, this is really important. No, this isn't important. This is the whole case. You have to have played this scenario out with the attorney so that everybody understands the goal, where we're going, and what the case is based on. Plaintiffs change their theories more often than they change their underwear in these things. The defense has to have a consistent theory of what happened in the case. You have three different stories being told. All of a sudden, you're a liar. Yes, and so it is important for the doctor whose care is being defended to understand the strategy that the... uh, lawyers are going to work on and if you disagree with that strategy this is not the time in the court for you to make it clear oh they specifically give an example where the uh, a doctor threw a nurse under the bus uh, claiming that the nurse made a mistake in giving the medication iv the lawyer basically that wasn't the train of the argument that the lawyer was making at all so the lawyer wound up pointing out that this was an acceptable method of giving the medication, and there was no black box warning at the time regarding IV administration. This was dealt the theoretical case dealt with IV Fenergan, right, and the loss of a hand in a professional tennis player. Yeah, um, and and so um, you do yourself a substantial disadvantage if you don't know the strategy that this lawyer is going to be taking, because this doctor just de- derailed the strategy and distracted from it and made an assertion that was incorrect and the lawyer has to basically correct the doctor now jesus you know what you might as well you might as well just go out and hang yourself <laughs> when you've done that <laughs> well, and let, let me tell you the other thing throwing somebody else under the bus never helps you because they paint with a very wide you know roller here as to who causes trouble 
all the jury hears in that case is somebody did something wrong and somebody died. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't me. So that's just that's just pointing fingers. I can't tell you the number of cases in depth where I've heard, you know, the surgeon say, well, if they'd only called me 15 minutes earlier, I could have saved that person who had been run over by the bus. Unlikely, and by ingrandizing yourself like that, it never helps the situation. It just doesn't. Um, I've certainly sat in rooms and, and advised groups of doctors. When there's three and four defendants, you need to be in the room with those attorneys so they understand where everyone's coming from in this discussion. Because sometimes just little differences in stories or an innuendo phrase dropped. Well, I couldn't expect him to know that. He's an emergency doctor. This sort of thing uh, can be incredibly harmful. Although in those situations, uh, the attorneys may be representing different insurance companies. Oh, they always are, yes. And, and in those cases, their job is solely to get you off. And so, how No, they, their job is to protect their pot of gold. Right, so that somebody else must have been responsible. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So they're not necessarily going to uh, cooperate with each other. That's why you need to have that discussion in a room privately so you're not blindsided by that kind of thing. The other thing is uh, they looked at, was the person arrogant? Uh, did, they not, did they lose poise during the cross-examination? Uh, they, they noted, the judges noted, the residents were occasionally... Uh, too argumentative. I don't think you, I think it's one of the worst things that you can do. Well, you should not back down. You should not back down on fundamental points. But if they say uh, tomorrow morning, is it likely here in Southern California that the sun will come up? Well, that's number two. They said <laughs> not conceding an an obvious point made by the plaintiff attorney was perceived as causing the residents to lose credibility. Absolutely. If you challenge the sun's going to rise tomorrow because you, you're on the defensive, right. you, you look like an idiot. Right. So acknowledge the points that are that are uh, correct. And there are cer- certain responses which you need to be prepared for. When, whenever the plaintiff said, well, doctor, in the emergency room, uh, you believe in doing a, uh, a complete exam on the patient's? You never acquiesce to that. What I do, counselor, is the correct exam for the symptoms that have presented to me. Because if you say I do a complete exam on everybody, he'll say, oh, you did two-point discrimination on somebody who came in with a foreign body. in the It never happened, Rick. And, and sometimes if you're not prepared for these kinds of traps, lawyers study traps. You get sucked in. And then you become argumentative. Well, that's not what I meant. So, so doctor, are you as confused now as you were when you saw our patient? They all, um, yeah, I think that you have to watch the line between, you have to show confidence, but there's a narrow line between confidence and arrogance. Different, yeah, yeah yes, right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, slow down the response if you feel too much pressure during cross-exam. I think that you control the pace. Right. Not them. The other thing is, it's never a memory contest. If you need to refer to your chart, do it. Um, it <clears throat> you and I have, in our careers, Rick, we've probably seen 140,000 patients. 
Do you honestly think we remember all 140,000 patients? I mean... Most of them. But mo- most of them. Most. Yeah. Well, I, can you name them? Fred, George, <laughs> Ralph. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I think um, attorneys want to do is they want to fluster you. Of course. And one of the ways that they can fluster you is by rapid fire questions kind of thing. And it's a, a trap because uh, they're better at it than you are. And so I think that basically the pace... You should acknowledge and understand that you control the pace. Well, the other thing is you can always buy time by saying, I want to make sure I understand your question correctly, counselor. That's just giving you another five or six seconds to compose your thoughts. Can you rephrase that for me? Uh, This sort of thing does help you to get a little confidence back and to to reassert yourself. You know, one of the other things that... uh, and I actually have a question about this. They, the, one of the elements that they uh, rated these people on is their, uh, did they appear knowledgeable and c- convincing as a witness? And um, they always seem to do better um, on the second round compared with the first round on everything else uh, except uh, uh, this, this area. They didn't really uh, improve much. Maybe that's because they were good to begin with. And you can't really improve much on good to begin with with regard to knowledge. But I, here's my question to you, Greg. Um, should you study up on the medical issues that the trial is is involving? Um, so you missed an aortic dissection. You go back and read up and study all about aortic dissections. And so on the stand, you sound like you know everything about this disorder. Mm-hmm. But it's because after the fact... You read everything you could get your hands on about this disorder. Um, can that be used against you? It depends on how the attorney asks a question. I've certainly had those things asked. If they said, uh, if they said to me uh, as an expert, Dr. Henry, have you done special research and reading on this? I said, no. I read, I read journals and articles every day. It may have come up again. This is where I'm at. If it's the doctor involved... I have seen this used negatively, where they said, Doctor, we bet you went home and, and, and uh, looked up everything, didn't you? So, well, I read this and I've read that. And they said, is that because you didn't have that knowledge that night in the department? So what you're telling us, Doctor, is you needed more knowledge and you didn't have it when our patient needed it. It can be used against you, and, and you have to be very careful as you answer that question. Yeah, I would think it could be used against you. Yep. Um, empathy. Uh, these were surprisingly the lowest scores and the ones that failed to significantly improve with uh, repeat testimony. Uh, residents may have been struggling to appear more knowledgeable than they really were and in the process sacrificed empathy, thus damaging their image as a compassionate professional. Yep. And, and I'll That's t- what I'll, the judges said. What you can give away immediately is... Uh, well, doctor, you know, something bad happened. He says, yes. And no matter how this turns out, the family has my deep sympathy. I'm saying, you know, I wish things had turned out differently. I know that they're grieving. And this is part of the process. Because that's fair. And it's correct. It's correct. See, what they're afraid of is showing any humanity as if it might show a crack in the wall. Uh, uh, saying I'm sorry, 
that something bad happened is not the same as saying I'm guilty for having caused Well, it. as a matter of fact, under the chapter we did on rules and regulations, we did cover the apology laws. I'm sorry laws, the, right. Um, yeah, and the, it was acknowledged that there's about 35 states that have them right, and a bunch that don't. But states vary, and I brought up the case in California where somebody thought that they were following the rules and said, it's my fault, I'm sorry. Well, the California law does not give you a pass if you acknowledge that it's your fault. It doesn't give you carte blanche. You're not allowed to say, "Uh, it's my fault. Right. And you're allowed to say, I'm sorry. And all of the nice things that you just said, you're allowed to say. But you're not allowed to admit guilt because that is admissible in court. Right. Exactly. Um, I think the idea of constantly having the theme that the patient is your primary interest, you are the servant of the patient, you know, allows you to be humble, not arrogant kind of thing. The patients come first. That's what the jury wants to hear. jury wants to know what, decide one thing. If they walked in with their kid, would they be happy with you seeing, seeing that child? And if, if they, they have to answer that in the affirmative, if they don't like you, you know, they get to express that on the, on the, on the uh, jury form. And uh, the last thing you want them to do is be mad at you for a behavior as opposed to <laughs> actual science, because that that's no good. And then the last thing was, was the judge treated deferentially by the doctors, and um, there was no significant improvement before and after their counseling and after because... They were probably very deferential right from the get-go. That's so what you, I would think, so too. So you can't show any improvement in there because it was good to begin with. Yeah. Now, um, I thought that this was an interesting paper, but um, limiting it to residents, they acknowledge that residents are often involved in malpractice suits, but the hospital usually just eats it because, you know... Um, uh, they make some kind of arrangement in the hospital and these residents don't necessarily have to testify and those kinds of things. But, And so there is some statistics in their paper about saying that residents are often sued. But I think that teaching residents is a great idea. But what about after you're out of residency? This thing, I believe, honestly, should have been videotaped, edited down, and made available to any doctor because, you know, you're going to get sued five years from now, ten years from yeah. now. All of this is, that's when you need to hear this. By the way, there are there are materials available to you. Uh, we've got a, a small bookshelf of books on, a, on the legal process, what to expect, uh, even one that, uh, uh, that covers how you expect to feel during the process. I think that more people are recognizing this uh, litigation stress uh, disorder, and I th- I think it is real. If, if over the oh, years, sure. as I've watched doctors, they they don't do well under this kind of continuous daily stress. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why this um, no fault system would be good because it would not destroy doctors, which it, this has this process has done. Now, certainly not all are equally harmed by it, but everybody is harmed by it to a certain degree. One of the things I did think as a caveat is 
your lawyer may not agree with all of the advice here. Um, so if you were to see this video, it's one of those things where I would I would make sure that the, your lawyer, this could be all distilled down to 30 minutes. Right. Your lawyer would be happy to bill for 30 minutes time to watch it and said, now to tell you the truth, I would not recommend this or that kind of thing. Right. And I'm defending you. And so this is what I would prefer. Here's our strategy. So don't right. go in this uh, thing without getting their counsel in right. In this, is, I think is a all right. but important let's, caveat. Let's to end this, just say, thanks for putting this in the literature. I think you've emphasized the fact that you do better <laughs> when you do it multiple times. And so they ought to experience a little of this before they actually go into the either a deposition or, or trial for the first time. I think it's a great opportunity for for an educational video. Absolutely. What do you think we make an educational video? Uh, we here? should. You know, Rick, we can you know. do this. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're we're kind of we're into this by for about an hour now. So we got about 15 minutes left. Um, do you want to let me briefly address Michael Golding? Um, Michael, honestly, I think I don't. I think he's from some other nice country, but not here. But in any case. Look at the heading on this email. I see, saw it. You see the, this heading is old guys, old guys. I know. And this <clears throat> Michael is the one who kind of wanted to slap your hands about calling people cardiac cripples. Yes, and I, I think that, that that's basically, honestly, you you wouldn't do that to real no, people. No, no, no. I mean, me a Copa, me a Copa. We're, we're, we're friends here, you know. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're, we put down our guard a little bit. But he uh, sent a couple months ago a. Um, a concern about the phrase excluding in terms of a diagnosis that he thinks that's a dangerous phrase to use in your charting that I, this has been excluded or that expected but I think that you would kind of be f kind of foolish to use that term myself and he suggests that there are other ways because we rarely exclude things but but Michael you'd have to agree that we've excluded pregnancy and most of the males who come into the building kind of thing you know? right on physical exams uh, perfect yeah but uh he suggests that that is a dangerous word because he feels it can be attacked because the fact of the matter is is we rarely exclude things that are being considered in the different yeah, now he, he, i want to argue with this for just you're a second allowed to. That's i'm why, allowed to that's why you're this. here yeah that's yeah. why we're here um excluding doesn't mean we've done every test in the world but what we have done is with our history and our physical, we've narrowed it down within a reasonable working hypothesis. You're right. I can't say by looking at you that you're not severely anemic. But what I can also say is you came in here with a foreign body in the eye. I don't have to be involved in excluding every diagnosis that exists in Harrison's textbook. Well, no, he's he wants to focus it to you know, what would be the the differential to consider for a chest pain patient? Yeah, I, I don't and even like the term differential because in truth, there's there's the right diagnosis and all the others. Well, he suggests that you may consider listing what you consider to be the most serious, uh, right, or the least likely, or and ranking them some order. I I don't think it based on your. Ex extensive experience that this you, you would say that this has been an issue that you've had to deal with it's not well i've certainly been asked the question well did he completely exclude this and then i have to say 
No, and there was no reason to do so at that moment in time. We have in the past talked about the pros and cons of lifting, listing a differential diagnosis, mm. which, is, which is, has been kind of implied that that's the way you should do medical charting in the medical decision-making section. You should, you're supposedly, at least some people say, but I think it's a mistake, to say, well, I've considered, uh, this patient has chest pain, I've considered aortic dissection, I've considered pulmonary embolism, I've considered acute coronary syndrome, of which is considered uh, unstable angina and STEMI or STEMIs. And um, I think that that is a bit of, of a trap. Considering them is, you know, one thing, but you certainly, well, uh, considering it is, is it's just too easy to, well, to say that now you know? in, in all fairness rick we make these judgments all the time there's going to be in the these united states this year four thousand aortic dissect you know uh thoracic dissections something like that that's about the number you know what that means that there's less than one per emergency department you're going to see chest pain every day he's 28 he's got a little fever and a cough and pleuritic pain that's chest pain. Are you going to do an arteriogram on this patient? Or a D-dimer or a CAT scan of the chest? No. You know, I've considered it. Well, what have you done to exclude it? Yeah. Well, I haven't really... See, he doesn't like that word exclude. But I think you can be reasonably asked, well, if you considered it, um, what have you done to um, confirm or deny your consideration well I, you know on that basis you could play that game with with every symptom that comes in I, I think that that's correct and and so at a certain point in time you do have to make decisions and say things like uh the, the probability it fell so low on my list that this is what i'm going at at this moment in time and um that allows us to get into this one phrase that i really really like from dan sullivan Anchoring bias. Oh, abs- oh, that's absolutely the anchoring case. bias. Um, this is this idea where you focus on a diagnosis and tend to exclude anything that you hear that uh, disagrees with your diagnosis. So one of the talks we gave at the course were was focused on picking up the atypical aortic dissection. Mm-hmm. And um, aortic dissections uh, are a, a genetic condition there is a genetic predisposition to to uh these things and he nicely made the case of a 17 year old that's the youngest that has been reported i think of a 17 year old or thereabouts a teenager who had uh, a family history of aortic dissection and the and this case was just missed repeatedly by the doctors because they didn't want to listen and they were honestly probably unaware of the genetic propensity to have a dissection. If you have a first-degree relative who's had a dissection, your chances of having one are substantially higher than the population at large. And and the the funny thing is, we always think about it when they've got Marfam's disease. Yeah, or they're turkeys. Turkeys turkeys are the animal that has most... Aortic dissections. Aortic dissections. That's that's because of their hypertension, which we bred into them, by the way. Well, you know, actually, I heard we're almost out of time. But I, I, this is a 30-second talk. I heard today, or yesterday, one of the docs, I asked in the audience when I gave my talk, what animal has a predisposition to uh, a, the sections? And one of the doctors knew right away. And he, and he said, well, here's the story. 
all these turkeys were dying kind of thing from these dissections. But one farmer's turkeys was not dying from these dissections. They found out that in the food that the turkeys were being put propranolol. There was a reserpine kind of analog yeah, yeah. so that these turkeys actually had lower blood pressure, and that's how they found out this relationship. This guy was fascinating. You, you realize in this country, we sell a hundred times more propranolol in, in, into the animal kingdom than we do to humans. It's Why? Oh, yes. They, they do it by the, by the tank car loads. And they put it in with the feed because all they want to do keep you calm. They want to get a turkey to the point where they're you know they're, the the American turkey now is big and fat and slow, it's all breasts and all breasts, and they want them to get to that point, and then they don't care if they live because they're going to cut their heads off anyway. Well, you know, I think probably the stress of knowing November twenty fourth <laughs> was coming. These turkeys probably felt that, and they just blew out their aorta. Now, yep. listen, you got about, uh, we're into this by 72 minutes. So, Doctor, you have about five minutes to tell us about wine of the month. Now, you're really beating me up here, Rick. Uh, Make it, just hit that head on. All right. All right. We're going, we're going up above Napa County to Sonoma County. And Sonoma can best be described as Napa without the attitude. Uh, it is the source by volume, uh, the, the county that produces the most grapes in the state of California. And uh, to, to give you some good news, and it's the home of La Crema, Rick, which, my, you know. My wife's favorite. Is your wife's favorite, one of the, one of the great wines around. But I want to I mention one which really needs to be hit hard, and that is there's one called Alexander Valley Vineyards. They have a 2011 Chardonnay Estate, which is to die for. Uh, high ratings, all the experts, and it's uh, 18 bucks a bottle. You know what, Rick? Run down there and get one of those, and we'll, uh, we'll have a, a good time the rest of the evening. Well, thank you, Greg, for the uh, recommendations. Uh, I think this is pretty much a wrap for the May 2013 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg, I really enjoy doing it with you face-to-face. This, you know, the Skype thing, it's just not the same. Buddy. Yeah, yeah, it's no, not there's, the same. There's, no, there's no animation. All right, well, that's it, and uh, we'll see you next month. Bye-bye. Bye for now.